Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. Uh, this is episode 111. I'm Amanda Earle, and I'm here with Ariel Gordon, who's going to talk to us about mudlarking. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure uh, to have you on the show. So Ariel is on the podcast as part of the thread we've been having this year, which is kind of off-page extra literary, although there's lots of page stuff involved in this too. But it's the uh, the thread has included discussions of artist books with Barry Tullett and Sarah Bodman, recording studio with Gareth, Gareth Auden-Hole, Pakistani folklore with Nimra and Manahil Bandakwala, The Alphabet with Joanna Drucker, and book conversations Conservation with Christine McNair. So this is the last episode of the thread, and uh, so I thought it would be really interesting to talk to Ariel. Uh, so uh, welcome, Ariel, to the Small Machine Talks. Yes, I can't wait to talk about all things muddy. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's fascinating to me, and and one of the, we'll talk about it more. But one of the things, uh, um, and I'll I'll put up the link on. Um, on um, your in your social media in your Instagram and Facebook, you always have these really tantalizing uh, photos and videos and stuff of of your your of mudlarking. So um, so that'll be in, so that's something I, I'll I'll uh, add to the um, list of show notes that I'll put on smallmachinetalks.com. So the first question I'd I'd like to ask is, what would you like listeners to know about you? I guess mostly that I am an enthusiast and not an expert um and that goes towards um my writing and then also what i write about so um i feel like i am always discovering new things about my practice uh whether it's poetry or nonfiction, and and i am always curious um and also like while i write about the natural world and i write about climate change and urban nature I'm not an expert on any of those things. And one of the things I learned while writing my book, Treed, uh, which was about Canada's urban forests and sort of exploring the idea of the urban forest, was that instead of trying to reach for some authority, right, to try and, and be set myself up as an expert in those pages, because I was a character in that book, I really set myself up as someone that didn't know that we were trying to figure this stuff out together, reader and writer. And that was where I felt most comfortable. I mean, more generally, my strengths are enthusiasm for the world and a bloody-minded determination. <laughs> um, and I'm also good at unskilled manual labor, like lifting and carrying things. So those are my three skills. Surprisingly, I have not made a lot of money in my life. <laughs> Well, that's it. That, that that's that's interesting. Yeah, seeing uh, lifting and carrying things would be good. I'm not particularly good at that. Just very small weights, <laughs> but uh, that's about it. And so, yeah. So we're we're going to be talking about mudlarking, but you've also done a lot of other. Um, you're also you have a book coming out um, 
as well um, f- called Fungal, which is from Woolsack and Wynn coming out in the spring of 2024. So that's, um, and one of the essays in the book is uh, Red River Mudlarker, which you which you shared with me. So um, what would you like listeners to know about mudlarking? First of all, I never heard the term until, until I saw it through you and I loved it. It's like a combination of mud and also something that is a lark, which is something that is, is fun, or maybe there are other, other definitions of the word lark, but I loved, a lark is also a bird. So, you know, that there's a lot of uh, connotations and interesting directions that the, that word mudlark takes me in. Um, yeah. So I'd love to yeah, know. It's, it's a really interesting word. Um, very, very good on the mouth, right? Very good in the mouth. Um, and cause so poets are drawn like magpies to those kinds of words, right? Yeah. Um, lots of sounds in it. It's got lots of, like, it's a, it's like the word, like I named my book hump, my first book, because yeah. I love that sound, right? Even just in that, that short, toothy, rounded word and mudlark mm-hmm. has some of the same juice. Um, but I'm kind of uncomfortable with the world word because it doesn't have a Canadian context. It's really uh, goes back to London's te- te- Thames, Thames yeah. River. I yeah. so infrequently say that word. I mostly only read it. Um, and it was this mudlarking was a subsistence activity rooted in the 19th century um, where usually children uh, and or elderly people um, would sort of search the banks of the Thames, the tidal Thames River, which was the main route in and out of London, right? So that massive shipping, that's how goods were moved in and out of, of England was through that river. And so it was a subsistence uh, activity, so scavenging whatever fell off the boats, um, also stealing anything that wasn't nailed down, right? Like literally, so uh, copper off the sides of boats and ropes that were hanging off. And and it was really in some ways considered the lowest of the low of the hierarchy of scavengers and thieves um, in that society, um, right? So it wasn't fun. It wasn't, it wasn't a fun activity. And um, over the last... Mm, 20 years, certainly, but more recently, sort of in the last 10 years, it's become an activity by people that live alongside that river and in other coastal rivers, like other rivers and and, and seashores where they go and look for, for things. And it's um, on the Thames now, you have to have a permit to go yeah. pull things from the river yeah. and if you find something that's considered treasure or is particularly old, um, the museum system there, it's called the Fines Liaison Office, um, has the right, you're supposed to register your fines that are valuable and they have the right to take them for museums um, mm. if they don't already have examples of those things. But they can find ancient things, right? Like Roman and Saxon and, mm. you know, like ancient things. And it, partly that's because that's an anaerobic river or the anaerobic mud and because it's tidal. So the anaerobic mud, which means without oxygen, preserves things. And because it's tidal, right, there's constant erosion and things being revealed. And that's certainly not the case here in Winnipeg, in Manitoba, on the Red River, where I am. It's a river, so we don't have the tides. Um, and But what we do have is lots of mud. Yeah. Um, and it's described as Red River Gumbo. And... So we have a lot of clay. We're in a floodplain. The river does historically flood. 
and the levels of the river are controlled, but they're sort of up and down over the over the course of the spring, summer, and fall. And uh, so I already feel there's such a wide gulf between contemporary middle class and upper middle class people that can afford to spend the time scrounging around in that mud for for old things and the subsistence activity where the word originated but and then bringing that also to winnipeg right like a totally different context a totally different system but it's kind of amazing because I often think that the multinational system of goods being moved around the world started around Thomas Edison's time, right? Where mm. all of a sudden all these products were ubiquitous and we were shipping them around the world, right? Um, but it's not true because I find the same bottles that mm. mudlarkers in Scotland and England find or wow. some of the same bottles. There's also local things that we only we have. Mm. But, you know, like finding Vaseline jars from cheeseboro new york some <laughs> vaseline jars that they're finding in the uk finding you know a lot of the same like gordon's gin bottles wow. um all kinds of things that's kind of shocking right so and i am in some ways doing the same things that they're doing right i'm looking for marbles and bottle stoppers and lids to things and uh, doll parts and <laughs> Complete bottles with embossing and bubbles and weird lips, right? Like, so I'm doing the same things that they're doing. It's just in a different context. But it's worth noting that my aunt, um, we've lived along the river banks of the riverbank, my family, just coincidentally for two generations, um, three actually, if you count my granny. And uh, my aunt was a bottle picker. So whenever the, the rivers rose, right? The things would wash in or be eroded out and she would go looking um, for old bottles. So I grew up like sort of seeing her bottles at family gathering or knowing that she did that. Um, but I didn't really take part in in her practice, except like if I felt, I remember once we had this big old bottle that was in our house that I found once and we brought it inside and washed it and we stuck it in a in a window. But like we didn't really notice it. It just stayed there because it was sort of interesting, but you know, I didn't research it. I didn't know anything about it. No idea where it is now. Sometimes I think about that bottle because now I would look at it with different eyes and part of mudlarking and part of mushrooming and part of being a writer is you get your eye in, mm -hmm. right? You train yourself to see things. And mudlarking isn't just walking along and seeing things. You have to train yourself for shape and for pattern and for color. And it's super interesting. And when I started mudlarking, it was really confusing because my eyes were trained for mushrooms. So I couldn't, I was having real trouble seeing anything. And then I found mushrooms. I'm like, oh, mushrooms, tree roots. Oh, I know, you know, like here, look at all these things I know. And I'm like, but that's not what I'm looking for today, right? Like I had to, so now I have two sets. I have both mushrooming eye and the mudlarking eye. And sometimes they play well together and sometimes they don't. <laughs> I, I have um, uh, one of my favorite filmmakers is the is the French uh, filmmaker Agnès Varda. And she has this great movie, uh, Les Glaneurs et la Glaneurs, or The Gleaners and I. And, uh, I love that word, The oh, Gleaners. That's oh it. My God. And, 
So, yeah, and, and the idea behind gleaning is that um, uh, when uh, the French harvested their food, far, farmers harvested their food, then uh, people who were poor were then invited to just go and take whatever was remaining from the harvest. And this, in a way, reminds me, a little, the idea of gleaning reminds yeah. me of that, too. And then in the movie, uh, she has, uh, they, she goes on to show how um, gleaning is done by artists uh, from there. Like, so they all pick up um, old furniture from the streets and stuff like that. And and my version of that is I do a, on Instagram, I do this hashtag I, I called Chairs of Ottawa, where I take photographs of um, of abandoned chairs. And it, but it's my form of gleaning and it's not mudlarking because it's not anywhere near water, but it's it's my form of, of uh, I guess I could call it chair larking or something like that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's uh, I tend to um, I'm a scavenger at heart, which I think yeah. is baked into sort of the the lower middle class of Winnipeg, right? Like, um, buying clothes and furniture and whatever you can secondhand, you know, like, I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm a born scavenger. And I so so mudlarking in some ways is a, an extension of that. And I'm going to actually write my next book after fungal is going to be a, a, about scavenging about that sort of great. lifestyle. That's great. Yeah. Well, maybe you, it'll make you uh, watch that movie uh, by uh, yeah. you, you. I think you really like it. I mean, she she was a fantastic, uh, fantastic director, and uh, there's a f- number of her movies that I really love. And I think I think you'd like that one actually quite a bit. Yeah. Well, and gleaning speaks yeah. to that era when mechanized harvesting started to happen, right? Because before it was people, and they would pick everything, right? Or mo- you know, most everything. Everything that was food, because food was so precious. But once you have mechanized machines harvesting, there's stuff left behind. Yeah. And so that idea that someone would go through, and I, yeah, I love that. That's, it's so, it's such an interesting concept. Yeah. Anyways. What, what was the initial spark for the mudlarking? What, what got you into it? Well, um, during the pandemic, um, writer and translator Sally Ito um, started scavenging along the Assiniboine River, which is the one closer to both of our homes. We live in Wolseley. Um, and she was posting pictures of it. And I was like, what is that, Sally? What are you doing? What are you doing? Tell me what you're doing. And um, it kind of looked like an adventure. And I always, I, and this was during the pandemic, so I was always up for an adventure or anything new or interesting to do that I could do just by stepping outside my door or maybe, you know, walking for 15 or 20 minutes. And so um, I asked to join her and she let me. And then we would mostly focus on the Assiniboine and sort of a different sites along the rivers that we thought might be good. And then I heard about the site that we now focus on pretty much exclusively. Um, and it was a friend of a friend, right? That was the, the journey that he posted pictures, uh, someone, uh, someone, I, someone posted pictures and then his sister sent me, sent it to me and said, Hey, and I was like, Ooh, <laughs> I was super excited. And, um, and this is sort of like a super site because it's close to the forks, um, in Winnipeg, which has had so many archeological digs and has such a long history of settler and indigenous occupation but it's just down, it's just down the river from that. Um, it's close to a brewery, uh, which had uh, disposed of 
broken bottles of its own and related garbage, but then also had a bottle recycling depot. So people were supposed to bring back their bottles because um, they were expensive to produce. And so, um, so there's a whole, so much glass there, like the riverbank in that spot is almost entirely glass, mm. hundred year old glass. Mm. And it's, it's a beautiful site, but it's also the worst pollution that you can think of. Cause that's not what a riverbank is supposed to look like or feel like or function like. Right. And then there was also a dump there. The CNR had uh, a dump there and it looked like there was also some construction waste that was happening. Uh, some construction dumping because there's bricks and, um, and tile bits of floored tile and windows and stuff. And then, further up the bank like closest to the to the to the bike path is there's garbage from like the 30s up to the 50s or roughly so mm -hmm. the range of of things that can be found start in like the 1880s and go all the way to about the 1950s um so not super old right but like but in terms of the the history of winnipeg as a city relatively old right mm -hmm. So you just you just went there and you and you found yourself um, attracted to the the history of it as well as the I mean yeah. the, when you're a writer you I mean I, I shouldn't generalize but a lot of us we we tend to like to do research and and stuff like that so it kind of yeah. it it's a, it leads to other it leads to various threads and and uh, things so yeah I can see that yeah interestingly. Um, both mushrooming, which by which I mean going and looking for mushrooms, and then also mudlarking were completely separate practices from my writing practice for a long time. Mm -hmm. So um, they felt complete in and of themselves. So going and looking for mushrooms and taking pictures of them and making spore prints from them and then posting pictures of both of those things was a complete practice. Right? People were like, oh, when are you going to write about mushrooms? And I was like, I don't need to. I, this is a complete practice. It's very satisfying on its own. I'm writing about these other things. But then, of course, I could not write about mushrooms eventually. Right. Like, it just takes me a while to convert those extra literary activities in into writing because they're already yeah. full and satisfying things to do on their own. And similarly with mudlarking, like I did it with a single compunction to write about it. And now I have, and I found it very satisfying as, as a thing to do. And and for this summer, I was really busy. I was working two jobs and didn't really have much time to work on, on things, but I tried to keep a journal. So I had time to go mudlarking, but that was kind of it, right? Like, and that was the thing that was keeping me feeling more grounded. And so what I was doing is I would write a little poem after every mudlark. But, you know, so that was in some ways the first time I'd done that where I very specifically paid attention while I was doing, as opposed to just shapes, eagle, raccoon, you know, broken dish. Do you know what I mean? Instead of just focusing on that, I found myself paying attention, like in that way that writers do, where you can feel yourself collecting, gleaning details for later. Exactly. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get that, actually. And I, I think since we were talking about poems and stuff, you have uh, your book that uh, with Brenda Schmidt called Sightseeing. And I was I, I was thinking it would be nice maybe if you could read from it. And I just um, I was looking at uh, the beginning. And one of the things I liked is um, uh, something Candace Savage wrote. Uh, she she wrote about the book that it documents the broken beauty of a world in crisis. And I just love the idea of the 
I don't know, there's something, uh, yeah, there, there's something that really draws me, the idea of the brokenness. And mudlarking must really, that's partly what it's doing. It's showing us the, the broken beauty of a world in crisis. So perhaps you could, uh, we could try, and you said that with sightseeing, because it's um, it's a collaboration between you and Brenda, it would be good to read maybe just both parts of, uh, of a poem. So I could read, if Brenda doesn't mind, hopefully she doesn't mind, I will read her part and you will read your part. So we can do that. We, we could do a poem like that now, if you'd like. Yeah. And I guess that's the thing, right? These poems are sort of a call and response. And yeah. so I like reading them in isolation. It feels kind of strange. Um, and I've had a number of fake Brendas over the course of long <laughs> over the past month. So you will be added to the list of fake Brendas. Nice, nice. Well, that's that's yeah. fun too. I'm honored. <laughs> if I if I were to start a band, I would call it Ariel Gordon and the Fake Brendas. I that sounds fantastic. I, yeah. Let's start writing some songs. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we're going to start on page thirty-eight, okay. and you're going to read the italicized poem that says "Full Moon Cottonwood." Okay. So you're starting. Hee <laughs> hee. Okay. Full moon, cottonwood, a great horned owl calling from the sloth. Frog singing all through the hollow. A robin sounds alarmed. Geese start up. Grass rustles, then nothing. Standard crime novel stuff. The sun has set. My old bones have turned the mean platelet volume way down. I'm standing on the deck. I'm standing on top of a fill hill in the decommissioned golf course, towing the licked lip of an old jug pearlescent in the mud. I look through it like it was a hagstone, and my favorite stand of conifers was a disguised coven of witches. Like it was a porthole, and the wind blow and the wind blown bows a rough and changeable sea. I look for fossils in the limestone chunks and bits of crockery with insignia in the dirt, but mostly find a full belly's worth of plastic and bits of eggshell with albumen, the inevitable mating pair honking from the rough. That's great. Thanks. One more thing I wanted to say is that um, I was talking about sort of the multinational aspect, right? That we didn't, I always thought that the multinational shipping um, products around the world sort of started not that long ago, um, but it actually started earlier than we thought. And I feel like mudlarking has turned me into like a settler garbage man uh, like cleaning up after my grandparents, right? <laughs> like I sometimes when I find a whole beer bottle that's from like um that was produced between 1901 and 1921, I'm like I think that my grandfather who died in 1970 1977 and who in World War 1 had um gonorrhea and was shot in the butt that he could have drank those beers when he came back. <laughs> right. I kind, of, I kind of like that idea. Um, so, yeah, it's that weird. Like the things I find are beautiful and they're they're kind of enchanting in their brokenness, but they're also like garbage. Yeah. Like This is a polluted space. 
and people sometimes thank me for for cleaning it up which i find so illogical because i only take the things that are appealing to me i am not systematically clearing an inch or a foot of riverbank right i walk along until i find something that's interesting to me and there's this idea that what we're finding are both archaeological finds um and also trash right like yeah. you can hold both of those ideas at once and it's 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 jarring but it also speaks to what it means to live in a city um to, to what it means to live alongside urban nature and to be in spaces like riverbanks where the usual rules of the city don't apply right people behave differently on riverbanks and on waterways right when they're not yeah. on the sidewalk when they're not on, on on a road in a car right like and so a lot of those rules about how we behave are different or are not followed or lapse or stretch right like a like a like a rope and i use this i'm stealing this image from my own work but it's my work so i can steal it it's not plagiarism <laughs> but if you can imagine a rope between a boat a floating boat and a dock and then it stretches and bends right you're still attached to that dock the boat is still attached but there's all this like give suddenly and i like to think that's what mudlarking is it it it, it explores some of that give yeah, that's 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 really interesting too. One of my favorite um, parts of that last poem was about the 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 the, the trees, uh, the conifers, and and the imagery of the witches, a coven. I love that. That's really um, that sort of thing tends to get my um, neurons firing and gets mm -hmm. resonates with me. So that's that's quite fun. That's hard not to look through a hagstone because I find hagstones on the riverbank fairly often whether they're man-made or or natural and i always look through them at sally hoping that i will see something different but i never do because you're supposed to be able to see it's supposed to be an illusion piercer a hagstone right okay i don't, know, I, I don't know what the illusion is yet maybe maybe you'll find it at some point along the line yeah uh, you, you talked about treed uh, and, and you've been writing about trees for a long time and your practice seems to focus on environmental concerns or it does focus on environmental concerns. Can you talk yeah. about the connection between your writing and the environment? And you've talked a little bit about the connection between the environment and mudlarking, but can you can you keep talking a little bit more about it? <laughs> I don't think you can write about nature anymore without bringing climate change into the conversation. I think it does a disservice to all of us. And I focus in my practices, my writing practice and, and my photography practice in trying to bring people in connection to the natural world, to realize that we are all animals too, right? We're all animals. And we're if we can be connected to the world, to the natural world, we will feel better, we will do better. You know, like... Um, and so a lot of my my practice as a writer can be boiled down to look at this, look at this, isn't this cool? Look, look at it, love it, isn't it great? And not everyone agrees with me, but I, I feel like that if we can start building those linkages, especially as people that live in cities, to, to the flora and fauna that are all around us, that we will be better prepared to do something about climate, right? And yeah. maybe that simplistic argument or way of being, but it's kind of what I've got. Um, and 
climate change is progressing more quickly on the prairies than they'd otherwise thought, right? And and we've had years now of a growing season where you can have severe drought in the spring and summer and then flooding in the fall, right? And so you look at, I mean, I'm in the city, so I'm, and I'm not a farmer, right? I, I don't, I don't follow farming, but I'm aware of it. And when you drive, when you go for a drive to a park or a beach or whatever, you in, invariably go by farmer's fields and you're like, oh my God, it's so dry. The, the, the crops are stunted and what manages to grow then in the fall when it's so wet right we get all of this moisture dumped by these super storms typically in the fall then they can't get whatever grew off the fields like and that's where our food comes from so what are we going to do long term right like so all the seasonality has shifted and then there's wildfire smoke that has blown into our cities from so like last year we didn't have as much as as you guys in the, the east yeah. did but we've had summers that were almost all wildfire smoke for years now which has never happened and that smoke is terrible to breathe yeah. and all those forest fires are, are catching fire more quickly because they're so dry like conditions are so dry because of because of you know drought but then they burn longer and hotter right so that's why we get these massive firestorms and fire like these massive fires so i know brenda and i want to provide it wanted to provide maybe some consolation or or a, a field guide or a manual on how to connect to the world but we couldn't do that within also bringing in the things that were hard mm -hmm. right without this like discussing them and pointing out like this is climate change and this is climate change and this is climate change right like because i think sometimes the, the problem is is that people can't look around their 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 yard or their city or their neighborhood and point to oh this is climate change yeah this is climate change because there's weather there's weird weather but weather isn't climate right it's overall patterns um but, you know, one of the things in, in, on the prairies is we're having, and in Winnipeg, is we're having many more 30 degree, plus 30 degree days than we have ever had. And those are really tough because most of our homes are not designed for the, that kind of heat, you know? And so it's been really hard. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's all connected. I'm trying to make those connections more explicit for people but not leave them in places of grief and sadness. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Speaking of that, one of the things you, in, in, when you, in Red, Red River Mudlarker in, in uh, fungal, the, the draft or the, the edited uh, or the version uh, that you sent me, um, you, when you talk about your first experience uh, mudlarking, you talk, you say it was glorious. The banks, the water line, the bottom of the river covered in shards of glass and shards of pottery. Um, was this treasure or only just settler garbage? I didn't know, but I felt broken open. I felt wild. And it's that wildness, especially that really, um, again, that really resonates. For me, when I take uh, long walks, um, like uh, I sometimes walk like 10, for me, long walk is like a total of 10 kilometers in a day, kind of this long walk. And I that makes me feel quite wild, like the wildness of just being, because even though I live in an urban center, there's lots of nature here and there's lots of uh, 
tree. I have favorite trees along a, a walk that I go to. So I, I think maybe one of the connections maybe between um, between your writing and and you know this this um, connection to nature and the environment is this feeling of wildness, this connection to nature. You know that. Uh... Yeah, and I think in some ways the reason the pandemic and especially the lockdown phases of pandemic weren't as hard for me as they might have been for other people is because a i was used to being at home and and working from home but b i mean i go out my front door and i feel connected to the world yeah. i feel part of something and and i'm not dependent only on human conversation and human society to feel happy um right and so it's been it's been a good way of being in the world, at least during pandemic climate changed times. Yeah, I realized it, these walks that I, I, I've been taking, especially over the last year, and being sort of surrounded by the trees and the birds and stuff like that, I, I actually realized that there are times when I felt quite lonely. And then with, with being out in nature, I actually feel a lot less alone because I'm surrounded by these tree friends and, and birds and all these different um, so yeah, so I, I that is uh, that is an important connection that I, I think uh, a lot of us uh, when we don't have it, it can be hard. I think on the yeah. site. And the the added bonus of mudlarking is that it's muddy. Do you get <laughs> muddy? And I I have I sometimes think if I don't get muddy, that it's not an adventure. Like if I don't fall down or get burrs on me or do you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> Yeah, I know people that are like, oh, you can't get dirty. I don't want to go into the woods. I might get dirty. I'm like, no, getting dirty is the best part. <laughs> That's interesting. So yeah. I like the adventure part of mudlarking. I like standing in the river in rubber boots. I like I like knowing the quality of the mud by getting stuck, finding out what the quality of the mud is today by getting stuck in it. And <laughs> having my friends laugh at me as I tug my boot out of, you know, three feet of like red river gumbo. Right. Um, and I love the things we can find. And I learned like, you know, some people, they start mudlarking and they're, they only want the complete things. They only want to find the complete dish or the complete bottle. They leave everything else behind. And I like the broken versions of China and glass where and yeah. better than I like the whole things like it hasn't led me to collect antique dishes like I'm like no I don't want any of that nonsense give me like a broken candy dish and I'm like ooh, you know yeah. like, so it's funny because yeah I mean I like all of those things too but everyone's grandmother is trying to get rid of their candy dishes and their sets of their sets of china that don't go in the dishwasher like I don't need any of that business you know, it is beautiful. And I know people do collect those things, but yeah, I like broken dishes more than I like intact dishes. Let's same, say. Same here, actually. <clears throat> that That's very true about another thing I take pictures of is uh, the broken. I, I, if I see, um, especially a broken mirror, that's one of my favorites. Uh, if, yeah. I, if I see a broken mirror, that's, that's one of the things. And also it, it, the thing that the way you were describing getting dirty and stuff makes me think of Mudlarking is a very physical activity, and writing is, is tends to be more of an abstract activity. So to be able to have that physicality in your life, it, it probably is also very um, uh, it, it, 
not soothing is the wrong word, but it, 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 satisfying, I guess, is that. It uses you up. Yeah, yeah. You have a finite amount of energy and you use it up. And so I often have to drag myself and my bag of fines and my poor muddy boots over the bridge and back to my car. And like, oh, there's this like terrible and pleasurable exhaustion of doing that. And then I always, I've learned now that if I have an orange and a cup of tea waiting for me in the car, oh my God, mm. the drive home is so nice. Yeah. But if I don't, then I'm all sitting there being like, I'm thirsty and I have no energy and oh, I'm muddy. Like I get that 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 weird loop. <laughs> and I always bring, like I always bring shoes to change out of. So I have my rubber boots and I can take them off. I can take off my muddy socks and I can put on like fresh socks and a pair of shoes. And oh, the best. It's the best. The smallest things you learn about what you need to be happy and for me it's like an orange yeah and fresh socks yeah no i i can totally get that do you think i i can you i don't know if you, we haven't talked ahead of time about this but can you imagine writing a a kind of a how-to guide or some kind of a guide for people for for potential mudlarkers you want to mudlark what what are some of the things you because you've mentioned about the fresh socks and the rubber boots and stuff anything else that you can think of you you advise people who uh are because they're listening to the show and then they're thinking oh i want to do this yeah. when i live near a, a really interesting river you know or a lake or something yeah i mean you want to go somewhere where there's been a long, long enough pattern of habitation right that that there would be stuff there because none of us want to collect um contemporary tampon applicators or really. <laughs> cigarette butts right you want if you're looking for things that are older and weird um you kind of have to go to places where like for instance before we had um established garbage pickup a lot of people that live next to rivers or lakes would bury their garbage somewhere on their property and often at the edge of the water um, so, and a lot of times that is what erodes out and that's what you'd be finding. Um, so, you know, for instance, um, I was a writer in residence, uh, in Scarborough this past year at the Doris McCarthy house. And we were right on Lake Ontario by the bluffs, right? Yeah. And we're at the house or at the at the lakeside like down 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 from the house um there was all kinds of tile all this tile from victorian toronto that had been demolished and dumped there as fill um right and so that was my favorite part was collecting all this old glass and tile and brick right that it was magnificently shaped but not what i was used to collecting it was a different category of stuff and then a, a friend of mine a mudlarking friend who lived in scarborough he had another stretch of lake ontario where you would find all these industrial marbles wow. right yeah. these clear industrial marbles but not in my stretch so i he took me to his patch which is you know he was very nice to do that and so i went with him a couple of times right after seeing all of his finds on his social media for a long time and so you know, you kind of have to put in the time and walk and notice. And those are, that's not wasted effort because that kind of walking and exploring is really good for the brain too. Um, but yeah, so what Sally and I bring along is I 
sometimes where I am, the glass and shine are sharp because it comes out of the mud as it was when it was broken, right? There's not a lot of wave action, so stuff doesn't get rounded or sea glassed. Um, and so stuff can be sharp. And I'm pretty good at it now, but there are periods where I cut my fingers tips and the tops of my fingers and like, oh, dirty, polluted river in open wounds. No. Doesn't sound so, good. <laughs> yeah. So what some people wear, what Sally and I wear sometimes are gloves, right? We get these thin, um, like, I don't know, waterproof, but like plasticized gloves that we wear. Um, rubber boots, good rubber boots are, are important because a lot of times stuff will be in water, as I said. Um, and I get ones that are sort of knee height, so mm -hmm. I can go up to like a foot in the water. We also bring along um, bags you know, and you want to have a bag that has a special sub compartment for your smallest and most delicate vines. Right. So that's important. Not just a pocket, like a bag with one pocket, um, water bottle I always bring. And then we always, Sally and I both use um, like gardening trowels. So you can just use like a spade to sort of do a tiny, we do mostly surface collecting. We don't dig. Um, so, but you know, sometimes you want to pry something out. So we have these little trowels that we use and Sally and I both use these Japanese gardening trowels from Lee Valley. You don't right. have to do that, but <laughs> it's a good tool, right? And you can use it because every piece that you see that I collect, I have bent down to pick up. So like, it's like, it represents not just the thing itself, but all of those motions of like, while seeing it, walking over, bending over and picking it up. And, um, the nice thing about the trowel is you can sort of pick things up and lift them without having to do the full, the full bend. But yeah, so yeah, not much. You don't need very many things, but uh, yeah, those things are all useful. Gloves, bag, rubber boots, trowel, water bottle. Those are the, the basics. Yeah. Sounds, sounds tea good. in the car, tea okay. and an orange in the car. <laughs> You don't want to get muddy hands on the on the thermos of tea or whatever as you're walking along. Yeah, everything is muddy, honestly. By the end, usually everything is muddy. And you sort of wash off enough of your hands so that you can eat the orange without also eating mud. Oh, gosh. And, yeah. <laughs> and I also jump straight into the shower. Sometimes when I get home. Sometimes in my mud lurking clothes if they're very, very dirty. Wow. Like if I've fallen down and my whole high my hindquarters are caked in mud, I will sometimes get in the shower in those clothes to get that first layer of mud off before I put them in the washing machine. <laughs> no adventure. That's an adventure. That qualifies as an adventure. Definitely. Yeah, that definitely sounds like an adventure. And it sounds like something to be written about too. So that that's really cool. Speaking of, of writing, so we, we have mentioned fungal and we've mentioned sightseeing, but would you like to talk a little bit more about the books? Uh, I know uh, fungal is forthcoming and sightseeing is out. So if you would like to talk yeah. about it. I seem the last, so my previous book of poetry and my previous book of nonfiction, I wrote at the same time and mm -hmm. they came out one came out in the fall of 29, spring of 2019. And then, oh, what was it? Yeah, they came out one, bam, bam, like one and then the other. And um, I seem to only do that because now I have this book, Sightseeing, which just came out this fall with At Bay Press. And then I'll have my book of nonfiction, 
creative nonfiction fungal um, coming out in spring with Woolsack and Wynn. And so I don't know why I do it that way. It just seems to be how my brain works. Um, I like to cheat on my main manuscript with other manuscripts. And then they just seem to be finishing that way. And uh, fungal, um, the trick is that I am the fun gal. Yeah. Um, that is sort of goes back, harkens back to my previous practice of writing work or essays that combine personal writing plus uh, science writing. Mm. Um, and so that one, Treed was about trees and mushrooms and fungal is about mushrooms and trees very <laughs> different so different um but yeah it's been it's been really fun to work on more nonfiction to sort of explore the kinds of essays that i write and the kinds of subjects that i write about um but yeah i can't wait for that one to be out um i'm really looking forward to to seeing what people think of it. And because Treed, Treed has been out for a while now, since since 2019. Is that right? It is. God. It's been out since 2019, and it had a good run. But this one is sort of a continuation of that. And then there'll be a third book in 2026 hmm. um, called Stumped, or Tree Work. I haven't decided yet. Um, and, <laughs> and the reason we know that is because I wrote this massive manuscript, 400 plus pages. <laughs> and I kept on writing and I'm like, no, it's not done. It's not done. And my friends were like, it's too long. It's already too long. Stop writing. You must be done. I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not done. <laughs> and then I like, you know, I was finishing one of the last essays because I saved the hardest essays for last. The ones that I'm most anxious about writing, I saved for the last. So my friend's like, oh, it's too long. It's too long now. So you, you shouldn't work or you shouldn't finish that last essay. I'm like, no. So it's very important to the book. It needs to be in there. And it was after midnight and I finished a draft and, you know, I was trying to go to bed and, you know, you get that thing where your brain is still fizzing. Yeah. And you're lying there thinking of things, but you're exhausted, right? It's that weird thing. And all of a sudden I had a like, wait a minute. What if this isn't one 400 and some page book, but two 200 and some page books. <laughs> and I got up. And I went to my notebook and I had been keeping a running tally of how many words it was. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. So I flipped the page and I did this. <laughs> Separating. I yeah. separated them and it was like I designed it that way. Mm. It was like it was on purpose, but it totally wasn't. So one book is more focused on mushrooms and the other one is more focused on tree loss. And how they'd originally been together or that I considered them together was that the, tr the thing that killed my boulevard tree and thousands of other trees in, in Manitoba and throughout North America is it's a fungal disease, Dutch elm disease. Mm -hmm. So I was writing about the loss of my tree and other trees, but it all fit together because this was a book about fungi, right? And, and so... Separate, yeah. <laughs> I wrote my publisher... Um, Noelle Allen at Woolsack and when I was like, hmm, um, it's okay if we, if I do this. And she was like, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause you know, you have that moment of like, oh no, did I write like twice as much book as I needed to for no reason? <laughs> 
but as it turns out that it worked it worked out it doesn't always those kinds of things because a lot of writing i find is discarding writing yeah yeah it's it's you know yeah. like you write way more than ever sees the light of day but i don't know i really liked all of these essays and you know it had been since 2019 of writing them and maybe even a little bit longer some of those essays you know predated right like when they get pulled in but yeah so yeah that's what's next and sightseeing i've been touring um the last couple of weeks and i really i don't know i'm so honored to work with brenda schmidt who's a saskatchewan poet and birder and uh i was a mentor of mine in the most generous ways when i was just starting out after we met at the sage hill writing experience and uh i don't know i went to i worked the back end of a zoom launch of a collaborative work that my publisher did at Bay Press, um, an English-French poetry collaboration. And uh, Edie Blagette and Gere um, Levele. And when it was done, it was midnight. And I had one of those midnight, like, ooh. <laughs> so I wrote Brenda, I'm like, you wouldn't happen to want to do something like this with, with me, would you? <laughs> and I was shocked when she wrote back, yes. And so we just started, we just started writing. And I was supposed to write about trees and climate and she was supposed to write about birds and climate. And that's the only parameters we set and writing short, like right. trying to write short. Speaking of which, do you want to read another one? Yeah, I was just going to ask you. I was just going to ask you if you wanted to do that. That's great. Okay. Page 94. Actually, and you're going to start on page 93, I think. Yeah, page 93 with October 16th. Hey. October 16th, two butterflies probe gold galardia, as if they can't believe it either, while two two-striped grasshoppers get it on, on the snow in summer, apt name for a plant it seems, two days after actual snow fell. The snow is gone, the road already dusting, Everything is so dry right now. I rub dust off the lens, take a pick. An expert will later say they are common checkered skippers and I will love it and the algorithm that places butterflies in her feed. We stalk the riverbank in shirt sleeves. The mud crisscrossed by raccoon and gull prints. The exposed rocks studded with the absurd sequins of zebra mussels. I pull up a broken blue and white plate from the river, beaded with villagers, but missing the famous pair of birds. The silty water clearer the last few weeks, filter feeders busy. Standing in the river, I pull out my phone, follow invasive red from the US border north to the mouth of the Hudson's Bay. Small suns on the water, shoreline glinting with shards of solarized lavender, of solarized lavender and turquoise glass. We are enclosed by trees and veins of clay, homeless encampments and pleasure craft. We lose the light. 
That's great. I, I love all the color and stuff too. And and yeah, I, I meant to ask you as well. Um, you, another thing you you're doing these days is is stained glass. So um, mm. it feels like it's it's related to this because again, it's it's taken broken pieces of glass. So can you talk a little bit about your stained glass practice these days? Yeah. So one of the things that makes our riverbank unique, like we're not finding Roman and and Saxon things. And I don't, I sort of, I don't collect anything that's indigenous, right? So indigenous pottery or, or um, arrowheads or any of that business, that's not for me to collect, right? I feel like I am there to collect the, the settler remnants. But one of the things that we have that's most interesting is stained glass scrap. So in the period that our dump is or that 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 the things that we're finding there were the most prosperous in winnipeg's history right and so that's when all of the churches were being built and, and built and that's where all kinds of middle class housing was being built and a lot of those middle class houses had those little panels of stained glass in the entranceway and of course the churches needed full stained glass coverage and so at this bottle recycling depot people brought all the garbage all the glass they had right and so, so much stained glass scrap. And I love it. It's like 100-year-old, beautiful pieces of glass. And eventually I had a, like a, a shoebox full. And I was like, well, what am I going to do with this besides look at it, right? Besides take out pieces and hold them up to the light and, and go, ooh, isn't this pretty? And take pictures. But like I wanted to do something with it. So I took a stained glass class at my local studio with the full intention of perverting the techniques that they were that they were that they were sharing with me and um i loved it as it turns out i sort of loved the brutalness of it it's a small brutal craft mm. you know like there's solder and copper foil and you have to cut and polish and shape and usually people that like stained glass are people that are very precise like mm. everything has to line up perfectly right and I am not that way. I'm not I'm messy and irregular and good enough in my approach to craft, which is why I have not done any crafts to this point in my life, really. Like, I'm not crafty. But my idea was to create these conglomerations of glass using the glass mostly as found. So I don't cut the glass to make it fit. So I just... And normally with stained glass, you have a pattern, right? This is the thing you want to make and you cut glass and you line it up on the pattern, right? That's how you build something. I go the opposite way. So I put things down on paper. And at first, because I was grinding some of it, I would actually have to draw around the pieces of glass. So it was like a reverse puzzle, mm -hmm. right? So instead of, I had to make a pattern from what I had to be able to put it back. But I've since realized that the stained glass is not really sharp usually. So I don't have to grind it. So I can just literally make a shape, foil the individual pieces, and then stained glass it together. So I make these blobs, these blobs of like 100-year-old glass. And I love them. Like it makes me so happy. I don't know. And I've just started to sell them kind of. Uh, and I don't know. I, I don't really understand money. Yeah. or monetizing things really um so you know but yeah i love it it makes me happy and it feels 
it still feels like mudlarking in the same way because I'm sorting, right? I'm sorting and I'm gathering and I am making something out of garbage. Yeah, that's it. No, that's really neat. I yeah. love and I love the when I've seen the uh, the photos of it that you shared. I've loved it. Like I I like um, I I'm the same way about craft. I uh, for a few for a number of years I did. Um, I, I was I was taking classes and doing hand built um, uh, pottery, and my instructor, my first instructor, said my my pieces were charmingly uneven, <laughs> and I said much like my character. So <laughs> that's basically well, that's basically yeah. One of the things I do is I leave holes. Like if if the pieces only sort of roughly come together, I use a lot of solder. I use solder like. <laughs> I don't know like like a material on its own right the solder is supposed to be kind of invisible but on my pieces it's like solder 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 to fill in the holes between pieces that don't actually really line up but i will leave some of the bigger holes on purpose and so the light shines through those differently yeah i've started using things that aren't that aren't glass so i've started using some metal Mm. Um, and different things that I find like anything flat I will try and put in a stained glass panel yeah. um, and sometimes I find bits of mirror and I put those in because it's a different experience right because when you're looking at it with stained glass you're used to looking through it but you can kind of catch the light catches in the mirror pieces differently but from the light you're providing so I don't know I like I like all of that playing with because yeah. really anything flat you can put in a stained glass there you go. Flat-ish. Yeah. Sounds great. Well, look for, I'll, I'll, I'll share your Instagram and, and people can look at some of your, uh, uh, the mudlocking, but other things and also, also the stained glass. And who knows when you're, if you do have them for sale, maybe you'll, you'll get some buyers through the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. You never know. Yes. Well, it was funny because for a while I didn't want to sell because I felt like I wasn't yet doing what I wanted to do. Like I was still learning. And then when, and then at a certain point I was like, no, it's just, it's satisfying enough just to make them. Yeah. I don't mind selling them. And now I'm back to, I like this too much to sell it. So I don't know. It, it seems to come and go, right? Like, but I only have so many windows. Like, that's the thing. All your relatives will end up with them for holiday presents or something. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. So it's been, it's been fun to sell them and, or, um, you know, but I like, I don't know. I kind of find it funny that my friends that have more money than I do will buy these ridiculous things for probably more money than they're worth. You know, like worth. What is it worth? How do you price things? It's bad. It's capitalist. I don't like it. But I know what you mean. It's 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 a conflicting. As someone who has to learn how to monetize myself imminently, I, I feel it. I feel like so. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Is there and there's so, yeah, there's so much there about class. Yeah who owns things and who doesn't and you know like there's a lot of homeless encampments on the river too where i'm going so there's all that it's all swirled together right that ideas of the city and value and ownership and land yeah yeah is there anything else you'd like to add before we we wrap up no <laughs> no i'm gonna go with no all right Except in the spring, look for my book, Fungal, and buy it so that I can, you know, I don't know. Look for all my books. Buy them all. Ha ha. Right, no. we'll, we'll, <laughs> share your, we'll share your site. And so all that information will be up there as well. So, yes. yeah. so 
Thanks to Ariel for being on the show, to Charles Orr for processing, to Jennifer Peterson for the intro-outro assistance, and to all of you for listening and sharing the episodes. Stay tuned for our final episode of episode of 2023, The Poetic Elements of Fiction with Francis Boyle. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.